0: It's alright, I'm not preaching, I'm only going to be a few minutes now. I, I sometimes threaten people that I'll only, when I'm preaching I'll only speak for 10 minutes. <laughs> Nobody ever believes me. <laughs> but no, it's just to introduce the offering. And you know, it's quite interesting because uh, we're going through a time of financial difficulty in the mission. And the strange thing was, I had a free Sunday. and. I go to my own church, and I sit at the back, (laughs) in the church. Um, Because it's just wonderful to be able to just sit, not have to do anything like you. (laughs) But the amazing thing was, of all things, the preacher that morning was one of the senior men from Elim, and his whole subject was sacrifice and he dealt with the altar and the sacrifice and you know it really touched my heart, it almost brought tears to my eyes and you know this is the responsibility of the church, it's it's sacrifice it's part of our worship, it's part of our ministry is sacrifice and in the old days of course the priest would bring the sacrifice but today We're all called upon in some way to give something to the Lord. And I don't want you to look on the offering this morning as just, oh, well, it's a routine. It's not. It's part of our worship. And in fact, I suppose one of the testimonies of my life would be sacrifice. I've had to sacrifice. I had to sacrifice my family. There came a time... A few years ago when I had to almost reconcile with my family because the years I'd been away from home, a year in a prison and many months at a time in Russia. But it's sacrifice. And even financially, I've always had to sacrifice. Um <laughs> you'd be surprised virtually when I set out to do something for God, we never have the money. And sometimes people have said, oh, you're wrong, you shouldn't be doing I mean, when we went to Siberia, for, took 400 people for three months, and it was costing about 2 million, and we didn't have 2 million pennies. We had a great deal less than 2 million pennies. (laughs) But the fact was, the people said, oh, no, no, wait until the money is there, and then go. But the significant thing was what we did in those three months could only have been accomplished at that time. If we had waited six months or one year, it couldn't have been done. Because we went back one year later, we could not repeat what we'd done at that significant time. And I remember after all the years of work, and after all, I'd been working more than 50 years, about 55 years, 56 years. Sorry, 57 years now in the former Soviet Union. I've got a medal from the United Nations celebrating 50 years of working in the Soviet Union and Israel. That's quite something to get that from the United Nations uh, for humanitarian, social, and mission work. And even the United Nations admit that. But you see, God gave me a vision through the years, and that vision was to bring East and West together. Uh, even under communism, I saw that we had to make a breakthrough beyond anything that I was doing. And I set out to hold a conference, and it was to be an enormous conference. We were to get 4,000 people in the first conference, then grew to we couldn't find a hall big enough. But nobody would support me. And I actually had to go to my bank, if you can believe this, and borrow what in present terms is half a million pounds to launch it. Of course, God gave it back. But you know, it's an enormous responsibility. It's because the number of times I've had to put my house on the line uh, in order to do what God wants to do. And I'm asking you, to be part of this ministry. As I said last night, we are the largest evangelistic mission, certainly in Britain, probably in the whole of Europe. People don't understand because we don't make a lot of noise. But if you see what God is doing, it's phenomenal. The hundreds of thousands that we've won for Christ, millions that we've won for Christ. We can sometimes see 10,000 repent in one Meeting. I'll tell you a bit about it later. I'm asking you to make a sacrifice. Um, the big meeting we had in London on Friday with 1,400 there uh, probably only cost about 18,000. But a, a small evangelistic mission will cost about 100,000. The National Day of Prayer in Kiev costs over 300,000. And we normally spend on evangelism alone one and a half million pounds per year just on evangelism. And I want you to become partners with us in this ministry and give sacrificially. And when you give, say, Lord, I'm not giving this to David. I'm giving it to you and I'm laying this on an altar of sacrifice. i tell you, over the years when I've given, God is more generous than me. I remember the times that they've tried to persuade me to take a salary from the mission. And I've always said two things. One is, I will only take a salary when we've finished evangelizing Europe. <laughs> you know when that'll be. <laughs> and the other thing is, I once had an argument with God, you see. I said, look, I'm doing all this work and um, I'm overworked and underpaid. And the Lord actually said to me, who would you rather pay you, me or men? I said, oh, yeah, there's no question. I said, Lord, you pay me. I trust you more than I trust men. And God is faithful. And God bless. No, I don't live in poverty. I don't, I don't believe in poverty. I believe not in the wrong part of prosperity, but I believe the scripture says, if you give, God will repay you 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold, and I've proved it. So come on, we're going to take up an offering for the ministry, and I'm asking you to give generously, give sacrificially as unto the Lord. Bless you. Thank you. Well, thank you It's wonderful to experience the worship. Worship is so important. I think actually Friday, Friday to me was so different because there was a sense of triumph. How many of you were there Friday? yeah a sen- wasn't it a sense of triumph? Um, you know that's it, it's not just yes, you've got your intercession but I I was so moved, I can't wait to do the next day of prayer. (laughs) In fact, I've already this morning had the first message from some of my organizers. uh, When are we going to get together to plan the next one? But uh, as we said, and when we were singing Land of Hope and Glory and the Christian version of it... I'm looking, because remembering the last day of the proms, I'm sure you all watch the last day of the proms, don't you? You don't? Oh, it's fantastic. All the flag waving and the patriotism, it's wonderful. And I was saying, I'm looking forward to the day when we will sing that version of Land of Hope and Glory in the Royal Albert Hall. And the Royal Albert Hall means a lot to me because in my younger days, Uh, Elim used to take the Royal Albert Hall every Easter Monday for the big meetings. And significantly, when I was seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit when I was 13, why was I seeking the Holy Spirit when I was 13? Because I was saved aged 8, baptized in water aged 12, uh, took communion first aged 12, and then uh, following that, I was saying, look, I'm old enough now, I'm 13, I'm a man, I'm the Jewish law, <laughs> and uh, why can't I preach in the church? And they said, you're too young. I said, what do you mean? They said, you're too young. I said, no, I want to preach in the church. They said, you can't have the church. In the end, I persuaded them to let me have it on a Friday. And uh, we did everything, you know. We prepared the leaflets to get the people in. I got the worship group and got up to preach. Nobody, can, nobody repented. I mean, I couldn't understand it. Nobody repented. I went home to my father. Of course, my father, he wasn't the pastor of that church. He was general superintendent of the Elim churches. And I said, Dad, I said, what went wrong? I said, what's the purpose of preaching if people don't repent? 13-year-old. He said, he said, I'll tell you the trouble. You haven't received the Holy Spirit. And he taught me one of the most important lessons of my life. He said, this is what Jesus said. It's not your preaching that convicts. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit is come, He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Hmm. So I said, right, I need the Holy Spirit. Lay your hands on me. And I was kneeling at the side of my bed, and my dad laid his hands on me and prayed for me to receive the Holy Spirit. And of course, I didn't receive. No, I didn't receive. And again, I was to learn the next lesson. As a 13-year-old, I spent the coming days and weeks fasting and praying desperate to receive the Holy Spirit. And I learned another lesson which I'll share with you in a moment and it came through to Easter. And of course I I, I was born and lived in London and uh, you know even if you live in London you know you always go up to London don't you? (laughs) I don't know what it is you go up to London even if well we were a little bit south. And so with my twin brother and another friend, we said, look, we're going to go up this Easter. And I said, look, I'm going to go up to the conventions at Easter, and I will not come home without this baptism in the Holy Spirit. So I said, right, I'll go to three different meetings. I'll go to the Assemblies of God on the morning in the Westminster Central Hall. I'll then go and hear George Jeffries, who at that time had separated from Elim in the afternoon. And if I still don't receive the Holy Spirit, I'm going to where my dad is at night, and I'm determined I will not go home without the Holy Spirit. Well, I went to the first meeting with the Assemblies of God, and you know what these conventions are like, you know. Uh, It overran time in the morning, and they said, well, we're very sorry, we don't have time to pray to receive the Holy Spirit because it's lunchtime. Uh, I was a 13-year-old. I went to those 20 men on the platform. I said, how can you say that? I've come here to receive the Holy Spirit, and you're only talking about lunch. (laughs) They took the three of us on one side put us in a room and started to pray. Nothing happened. But one man saw my heart. He said, I'll stay with you. And as he opened up the scriptures, the Holy Spirit came down. And... Okay, I'm exaggerating slightly, but the whole roof blew off the Westminster Central Hall and all the angels came down from heaven and the place was filled with the glory of God and fire and power. I received the Holy Spirit and fire. But I'll tell you two things. One, I'll tell you right now, that fire is stronger in me now after 70 Yeah, 73 years. (laughs) It's stronger now than it was then. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But I learned one of the biggest lessons of my life. You know, working in Russia, during the communist days, I don't know why, but it seemed any believers always lived on the ninth floor of the apartment blocks. (laughs) Maybe fear of persecution. And staying with them and sleeping in these... Uh, apartments I learned one thing the milk was delivered not like you had it here you know in the bottle brought to your door you still remember that do you Yeah, we don't get it now well let's still do some places but in in Russia the way they received the milk was a horse and cart would come with an enormous barrel on the back with a tap I think some of you even remember that. (laughs) But the thing was that the housewife would have to come all the way down to catch this barrel, you know, and take down a jug and get the milk, you see. And you know, what would she do? In a hurry, she'd just pick up any old jug and, you know, it's half full of something else and take it down to get some milk. No, she wouldn't. She would empty that jug. She wanted a clean jug so that what she got was pure milk, not diluted by dirty water. Too many people, when they come to receive the Holy Spirit, are so full that they get a very diluted version of the Holy Spirit. Thirteen years old, God had me empty myself fasting and praying, so that all my ambitions, all my desires, were gone. So that when I came, that's why I had to wait three months, so that when I received the Holy Spirit, there was room for 98% Holy Spirit and only 2% of self. Too many people seeking the Holy Spirit they get 50-50, or not even 50-50, 10%, 20%. If you're seeking God, you've got to empty yourself so that when God comes in your left room for him to come in. Amen. Amen. Uh, once, talking to my father and, about the Holy Spirit, and of course you know, we are, we're, when we're saved, we receive the Spirit of Christ. And I began to say, well, look, what's the difference between salvation when we receive the Spirit and the baptism in the Spirit? And my father said, it's a bit like this. He said, you just bought a house. And because of your growing family, you've got three bedrooms and you've got some nice living rooms and maybe a study and so on. And he said, when you buy it, they only allow you to go in one room. You wouldn't live in one room, you want to possess the whole house. And when the Holy Spirit comes in, He doesn't want one room, He wants the whole house. And I think sometimes we've got to rethink, and to fulfill what I was talking about last night, if you want this experience with God, you've got to come back to God and say, What's wrong? Why don't I do what David does? Why don't I do what the Apostle Paul did? Why, don't I, why am I not like Billy Graham or Reinhard Bonnke? I'll tell you, you've got to get back on your knees and say, Lord, you're only in one room, and I'm going to throw open my life, and I want you to possess me. Yeah. 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 So it's not just a baptism, it's a possession. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, now let me open up the scripture. I'll start talking to you. (laughs) So I'm going to start with one scripture, and then I shall go on to a few others actually this morning. Because the key scripture that I'm bringing to you this morning is in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 20. And here it says, well, in verse 19, I will come to you shortly if the Lord will and know, not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. The kingdom of God isn't talk. The kingdom of God is action, church, the kingdom of God is action. That's why I told you last night when I was a pastor in the church in Dewsbury, where I still live, the church I found it. There came a time when God said to me, "Shut up. I'm sick and tired of listening to you telling other people what to do. Get out there and do it yourself. And don't come back till you've done it. Do you understand? You see, it's the demonstration and if I'm telling you something, I'm talking to myself. In fact, I sometimes say, I stand up in the pulpit and I say, I'm not talking to you, Lord. I'm talking to me because I have to do what I'm saying and I can't come back till I've done it. That's why I've just come last weekend, I was in Kiev. Why? Because I'm doing what I'm always doing. I, I, I wasn't here, I wasn't in my home church. A week ago on the Saturday, I was with the Jews on their Shabbat and preaching in two big meetings and saw a couple of hundred people repent. That's me. What else am I going to do? Saw some outstanding miracles of healing. Phenomenal. Katie records one woman was deaf, wasn't she? God just opened her ears and then jumping up people with broken legs. I love it when I pray for people with broken legs. And we, our platforms there aren't this high. They're about a, one and a half meters high. And you see somebody come on the platform with broken legs. God heals them and they're jumping up and down off the platform. That's a miracle. I've seen young men with broken limbs taking off the bandages completely healed. Broken arms totally healed. Broken wrists totally healed. I think one of the biggest miracles was it first happened in... Um, in Germany when I was preaching and then it, it, it was repeated, strangely enough, in Australia when I was down there preaching. And in Germany, this man had come in and he'd been in, I don't know, motorcycle accident or something, and the result was his right side was smashed up. And the only way they could make him walk was to put steel pins in his knee and in his ankle. And as a result, instead of crutches, he could he couldn't bend his leg, but he could walk. He was a young man and he was strong and he stood in front of me. And I just laid my hands on him, and in the name of Jesus, in those days I used to lay my hands on them. I don't do it anymore. I don't need to because God's bigger than that. God's bigger than me. But in those days, I laid my hands on him. I said, In the name of Jesus, I command you to walk. And I looked at him and I said, steel pins in your knees, steel pins possibly in his hip as well, but certainly in his ankle. I said, kneel down. (sighs) Can you imagine? He knelt down. And there was such a look on his face when he got up. And he was stood next to me and he pulled his fist back. I thought he was going to knock me to the ground. But instead, he threw his arms around me and lifted me up like a baby, bouncing me up and down, God had totally healed him and melted the steel pins. That's a miracle. The same thing happened in Australia. It was incredible. Another miracle in Australia, they, they brought a young woman in later on, the back on a bed. I can't even remember exactly what was wrong with her, but she she was absolutely hospitalized, and they brought her in, and I just prayed over her that God would work a miracle. She got up and she ran around, and the next night she was at the door welcoming all the people in. It was so moving, this because the whole city knew, and they sent the television to interview her and interview me. And when I was talking to the girl who, was interviewing me in front of the TV cameras and when I was sharing about Jesus, and look, I don't do these miracles, you should know the power of Jesus. The girl broke down and began to cry and turned away from the camera. She said, don't let the cameraman see me crying. And the man behind the camera came to find me in the house where I was staying. They wanted to know Jesus, just simply because of the miracles that they'd seen. This is the power of God, so the kingdom of God is not in word, but it's in the power. Let me turn you into Isaiah. And I'm going to do something which I don't normally do, because I feel that I've got to read to you from possibly three chapters here and give you some specific verses here, because if I start with Isaiah 58, Verse 4, Behold, you fast for strife and debate, and to smite with the fist of wickedness. Ye shall not fast as you do this day, to make your voice to be heard on high. Is this such a fast that I have chosen? Verse 6, It's... Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and let you break every yoke? Did you get that? I've got it marked in my Bible. What kind of a fast is it? You fast from bread, you fast from meat. For what purpose? The first that I have chosen is to loose the bands of wickedness, to l- undo the heavy burden, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Action, not the words. Verse 8. Then shall your light break forth as the morning. Oh, ooh, boy, listen to the next bit. And your health shall spring forth speedily. Wow. Your health. Oh, come on, if you're sick. Come on, enter into this. Come on, we can move into health and strength. I won't let sickness dominate me. I shan't another 40 years when I'm still preaching and jumping up and down. No. By the power of God. If you follow the Word of God, then your light will break forth as the morning and your health will spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Wow! When you're on the service of God, the glory of God's coming behind you. Sometimes it's in front of you, but when you're moving fast in God, the glory is protecting your rear. So nobody can come behind you and attack you. Boy, oh boy, don't we need to move into this? Cool, oh, come on. This is the kind of thing we've got to move into. The next step, verse 9. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. Wow! Then you will cry, and he shall say, Here I am! Has God started talking to you like that? Oh, I love it when God begins to talk to me. Uh, man to man, you know. Those times I've got my intercessor. Oh boy, he, he knows how to pray for me. He, and you know, he's waiting. He's just flew back into England yesterday. He's trying to talk to me on the phone. We can't wait to get together and talk man to man. Because he saw, he saw what God did Friday. He said, David, this is a new new turn. This is a a, 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 a milestone in your life. This is a new beginning. You know, I, I, I'm moving into new beginnings. I'm not looking at the past, oh, the past is only the strength to go forward. How was it do you think that when I was in that prison? You know I was in the communist prison, arrested. 1972. Not when the free, in, in the darkest days of the Cold War, I was in a prison, and it's only a Czech historian that's researched the case. And you know what he's discovered? He found in Somerset House in London the records of my imprisonment and what happened in the government. And I was codenamed Shakespeare. <laughs> well, I'm related to Shakespeare apparently, Hathaway, Shakespeare's wife. But the fact is that the British government determined not to help me. It's government record. They said, he's a Christian, he knew what he was doing, let him suffer. Can you understand? And I would have been in there for ten years, five years for Bible smuggling and five years of preaching the gospel. And they would have let me suffer there but i began to pray and call upon god and the thing that strengthened me was that this was only eight years after god had so dramatically healed my throat cancer you see the past now enabled me to move into the future and what i was saying to god was this oh god if you could work such a miracle that the doctors, the surgeons would say that somebody cut that cancer out with a knife, the hand of God actually physically cut the cancer out with a knife, then you can get me out of this prison. No, I didn't have a Bible in there. I spent nine months in the prison with no Bible. Uh, it's another story, but after nine months, I, 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 I smuggled the Bible back into my cell. I mean, I'm a professional smuggler. Come on. I'm a professional (laughs) prisoner. (laughs) What do you expect? But with no Bible, I was saying, oh God, what does my Bible say? Paul and Silas were in prison 2,000 years ago. I'm arguing with God. Come on. We talk man to man. No, sorry, no women talk. (laughs) I talk with God as a man. And he talks with me as a man. And I said, oh God, if 2,000 years ago, when Paul and Silas were in that prison, chained to the guards, and the gates bolted, you sent an earthquake that broke the chains and burst open the doors and set them free. I said, Oh God, if you could do that 2,000 years ago, your power is stronger now. That's the only time I disagree with the Bible, which says Jesus the same yesterday and today and forever. No, no, no. My God gets bigger and more powerful every day that I live. The God of my youth is not just the God of today, my God of today is a thousand times stronger than the God of my youth no, it's not God that changes, it's just me. And I said, oh God, if you could do that 2,000 years ago, what's the difference now? And I challenged God, what's different? If you could do it for Paul and Silas, and I'm here in a stinking communist prison because I'm preaching the gospel, send another earthquake. Break open the prison. Then I got dreams of helicopters No, not American helicopters, Israeli ones, they're better. (laughs) But you know what happened? After just less than a year, God sent the British Prime Minister. And when you read the record of how the government was opposed to getting me out, that was a a bigger miracle than you can realise. And I don't mean that the Prime Minister came and intervened, I mean I flew home on the airplane with Harold Wilson and had breakfast with him on the plane when I flew back to London. And because it was coming up to an election and Wilson did it, well there was a political move in it, don't worry. So he told me to wait on the plane, went off, got the TV cameras, and he walks off holding my arm, you know. (laughs) And we've still got the BBC footage. It's all right, we've got the BBC footage of that. But you see, that's God, isn't it? God is a God of his word, but he's not just a God of his word, he's a God of action. And when we're dealing with this God, and if you want power with this God, you've got to realize it's got to be a relationship. And I want to tell you, the secret of power with God is in the relationship you have with Him. It's how you walk with Him and how you talk with Him and what you do. And as I said last night, don't make a promise to God that you don't fulfill. Never, ever. Because you may shut the door of heaven against yourself. And God help me, I'm not going to let that happen. And the other thing is if you read in Leviticus chapter 6, the command to the priests, make a note and read it afterwards, don't turn it up now, but read it afterwards. Leviticus 6, the command to the priests was, when you light the fire on the altar of sacrifice, never let the fire go out. There's so many that start well and the fire goes out. Oh, God help me. I'm not going to let the fire go out. It's going to get stronger. But how do you keep the fire alight? No, it's not wood. It's not coal. It's not gas. You keep the fire going by Sacrifice. That's how you keep it going. You put more sacrifice on. And more sacrifice. And more sacrifice. You know, that's God. And that's what we don't understand. And what the government said about me almost 50 years ago, 40, was it, 46 well, 40, years ago, when they said, he's a Christian, let him suffer. You know, there are times when we must be prepared to suffer for Christ. I had a businessman who was from Germany, who was supporting the ministry, and he came to a place where he began to argue with me. He said, David, why? Why? Are you so determined? Why do you act the way that you do? Calm down a bit and think small. Oh, I say, God help me! I can't think small because my God's so big. And so I put on the wall in my office: "Think God, think big." What kind of a God do you have? Come on, is your God little and confined and impossible? Come to this, come to that. No, my God is the greatest, most powerful, most glorious God in the world. There is no God like Jehovah. Come on. There is no God like Jehovah. The great, there are, there are gods. I went to India preaching. God never called me to India, but I I went once. I said, Lord, can I go? He said, go and have a look. (laughs) I went and I said, thank you, Lord, I'm not called to India. (laughs) And I remember going around with the pastor, and we we, we went to see where there was one of these Hindu festivals. Well, it wasn't just Hindu. And I I, I could see all these millions of people. I said, how many gods are there in India? How many gods do you think there are in India? Well, the answer I got was, how many people are there in India? (laughs) There are as many gods as people. (laughs) There's so many gods. But there is only one real God. They're all false gods. They're images. There's no reality. There's no power. That's why Elijah, oh, come on, where's Elijah here this morning? Come on, God's looking for an Elijah here. What did Elijah do? He mocked them. Didn't he? They prepared the altar, you know, they got the wood and the sacrifice and he says now come on you priests let the you pray first and call on your god and the god that answers by fire he's the true god church do you challenge god the god that sends fire And you know what Elijah did? He was so determined to prove it. I mean, he laughed at them. He said, oh, the reason your God doesn't answer is he's either asleep, he's on holiday, or he's gone hunting or something. But there was no answer. There cannot be an answer because their gods are not, there's no life in their gods. But there is in my God. And then Elijah got up, but before he got up, you know what he did? He poured water on the sacrifice to make it impossible to burn (laughs) I don't know whether even I would have had enough faith to do quite that. But he poured 12 barrels of water on the sacrifice and then began to pray. And when he began to pray, God sent the fire. And the fire consumed the sacrifice, the wood, the water, and the stone. I remember some years ago when I was in my early days visiting Israel, I was there with a Christian, he was a bit of an archaeologist, lived out there, married an Israeli wife. And before I had arrived, he was on Mount Carmel and he took me to the place. And he had discovered that place that he believed was the place of the sacrifice. And do you know what he discovered? He discovered a piece of blue stone. And it was so unique, he brought it back to England and took it to the Hartwell uh, Atomic Research Station. Do you know what they found? They found that that blue stone was caused by an atomic explosion. Did you hear me? So the fire that actually fell on Mount Carmel was not ordinary fire because ordinary fire doesn't burn up Well, it can turn water to steam, but it doesn't burn the stones. So the fire that fell on karma was God's controlled atomic explosion. (laughs) Now, isn't that powerful? But look what kind of a God we have. He's the God of the impossible. And, and I'm accused because, uh, as, as my intercessor said to me when I was saying, what's, what's wrong with me? You know, I was talking to my prayer partner, this guy that's my intercessor, and I'm saying, tell me, I said, tell me, Dennis, what's wrong with me? Oh, and he said, the trouble with you is, he said, you live in an experimental faith. In other words, you try and do all the things that nobody else wants to do to prove God. It's, it's like when I went overland to Jerusalem. Nobody had ever done it before. They said it was impossible. The uh, government wouldn't allow us to take any women. There were just nine of us men that went. and. Um, They said, well, we don't stop men dying, you know, they climb Everest and half of them die and they do this and they die and they do this. So they expected me to die. And even my father expected me to die. I didn't learn till I got back that my father was praying day and night for me that God would stop me. Can you imagine? My own father praying that God, because he didn't believe that I would come back alive. Because they said, firstly, that I had to go through the communist countries and they they wouldn't let me through, that they'd put me in prison. And it's quite true that in Bulgaria, they put me in a prison camp overnight. And uh, when, when we went a thousand miles across Turkey, they said, you're sleeping in tents and the bandits will come in the night and they'll steal your car. They'll steal, it was a minibus, they'll steal the minibus, they'll steal everything and kill you. And then when you get to Syria, when they know you're going into Israel, they'll put you up against the wall and shoot you as spies. And sure enough, they put us against the wall. But only God delivered us and we got there. You see, it's got to be an experimental faith. And what God is challenging you to do is to do the things that are impossible with men. Because my Bible, I don't know it's different to your Bible, but my Bible says the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. So if you want to prove God, come and start and do the impossible. And if God is with you, God will do it. And... I'm not looking at the past, I'm only looking forward. I mean, when we got 4,000 people, as you know, in Caesarea just over a year ago, uh, you know, what's the reaction? My first reaction this is the height of my ambition to actually take the Roman amphitheater in Caesarea and for the first time in 2,000 years of history to preach the gospel there to unbelieving Jews. But God said, hold on a moment what's next? And I turned to my staff and I said, next is we get a bigger stadium and we get 6,000 there. So we're not looking back, we're looking forward. I'm looking forward to the glory of God and the glory of heaven. But what kind of a heaven are some people going to get into? Are they going there simply because the streets are paved with gold? Either going there because it's a comfort? <laughs> My older brother, who eventually became a missionary to India, when he was a young man, his dream about heaven was lying on a damp cloud with your feet in butter. <laughs> I don't know why you dreamt of that, I don't know. But I mean, what, what is your dream of heaven? Are you going to go to heaven simply because of the glory of the singing? I can tell you, you might have wonderful choirs here in London, and you might have wonderful worship here, but the singing in heaven is going to be a thousand times better. But I'll tell you something. The Bible actually says no angel can sing like you. Have you read that bit? Why can't they sing like you? because they've never been redeemed. They've not been brought from a life of sin. They've not got the joy and the motivation and the experience that you have. The song of the redeemed, no angel can touch it. But come on, is that what you're dreaming of? In my weak moments, that's what I think about. But I'm going to tell you something. I'll tell you what heaven is going to be. Now I'm going to shock you here. It's going to be hard work. Because when Jesus comes back, and I'm at the stage where what I'm doing now is actually relative to this future, because the, 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 the time is coming so close. If I were to preach on prophecy, I'd tell you the Lord could come back much quicker than you think. And I'm changing a lot of my views on prophecy. Prophecy. I've got a feeling, I I used to believe that we go through the tribulation and then are raptured at the last minute. I'm beginning to think, if God doesn't deliver us before the tribulation, Mm -hmm. the mark of the beast, it's here. You know what the mark of the beast is, don't you? The chip here. And it's already in use, and it's coming. Because of security, um, you know, with the credit card, now the banks want a cashless society and they're moving and you you use your credit cards. You pay with your mobile phone now, I won't, but many people pay with a mobile phone. And it's the chip, contains all the information. And because of the theft of phones and fraud with credit cards, they've already started in Sweden, several I think, there's 20,000, 30,000, some of the business is there. You can't get into your office. You've got the chip there, and you put your hand, and it opens it. Uh, I've already people know people that have witnessed where people in the ATM, the hole in the wall, you put your hand in to get your money out. Well, it's here. Well, they, they chip the dogs, they chip the cats, they chip the horses. And there was a move some time ago to put a chip in every baby. On the grounds that it has the medical record, and also it means you don't lose your children. That's a good idea. Kids don't get lost, because GPS, you can track where they are. But then when you look at what they've done on Facebook, I'm sure you know, I'm sure you read your newspapers, where they've used, and it's getting worse, I'll tell you, it's getting worse, it seems that they're using the information on Facebook to target people with elections, they know everything about you, they've built a profile on virtually every person from Facebook. And nothing is destroyed. You know, on the internet, nothing is destroyed. But do you understand how close we're getting to the end? Now, I, I, I work in Russia. And last year when I was in the big meeting with representatives of the government and advisers to Putin, I can read between the lines and I'll tell you, Russia is very close to the attack on Israel. And I'll tell you how it'll come. Putin is determined to push America out of the Middle East. And he's succeeding. The Americans have failed in the Middle East. And Putin stepped in, and in fighting the war with Assad, it's only to prove his power. And he's done it. And he's sitting back and he's laughing. But it's only the beginning. What's going to happen when the war in Syria is finished? Those Muslim countries are going to turn to to America and to Trump. And they're going to say, if you want power and influence in the Middle East, you're going to deal with the next question, which is Israel. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, you watch and see. The pastors in Russia believe that Russia will attack Israel. And what happens when they attack Israel? Jesus comes. You say, the building of the temple. How can they build the temple? Well, let me deal with that from a prophetic side. Everybody says, how can you destroy the the dome of the rock in order to build the temple? You don't have to. What I discovered on a recent visit to Israel is that the uh, Orthodox Jews, the Temple Institute, have already got their architectural drawings of the new temple. And the new temple will be sited not where the Dome of the Rock is, but to one side, which is called the Dome of the Spirit because they don't believe that the original temple was where the Dome of the Rock is. And it can be built. There's plenty of room to build the temple. And because the Scripture says that Jesus will enter in through the East Gate, the East Gate does not lead to the entrance of the Dome of the Rock, but it will lead to the entrance of the new temple. If you could only understand what's happening, you know from my film, The Rape of Europe, that Europe is the last empire. And in Daniel's image, he goes through all the empires. And at the time of Christ, you'd got through the Nebuchadnezzar and the Greeks and the Medes and the Persians and so on, and you got to the feet, which was the Roman Empire. By the time of Christ, 2,000 years ago, we were living in the legs and why two legs? Because the Roman Empire split in two, and the power of the empire went into the church, or that, and, and the church was taken over under Constantine in the third century was taken over, and then the church split into Rome and Constantinople, but in the East, the Catholic and the West, the Orthodox. Do you understand? And so what's happened is this. The feat is the restoration of the Roman Empire, which is Europe. And if you just look at at, at the history, well, you know in the film I showed that, firstly, uh, Babylon is in Berlin. You've got to see the film to see the pictures that the uh, European Parliament in Strasbourg is built in an exact replica of the Tower of Babel and all these symbols are are, are all over Europe. In fact, people were shocked, that film, that film's gone viral, it's on the internet, it's it's gone worldwide. In fact, that's one reason why I have to speak in Germany on the 12th of, of, of April. So we're so close to the return of Christ. But what I'm looking at is this Christian When Jesus comes back, what's going to happen? When Jesus comes back, I'll tell you what's going to happen. Jesus comes back to rule the world. It says, Isaiah 9, and the government will be on his shoulders. How are we going to deal with the world? Look, if Jesus were to come back this week, How would he deal with the chaos of Brexit? How would he deal with the fighting in the Middle East? How would he deal with the migration problem? How would he deal with hunger, with death, with murder? All over the world, the wars and so on. It's going to take an army of people under Jesus to solve the literal problems. You, if you're faithful, will be made rulers over cities, Jesus said according to your faithfulness, one city, five cities, ten cities, we're going to rule with Christ. Do you understand? Are you ready? Have you proved your ability? God needs people who can handle the situation, and when Christ comes back, he needs his people. Oof, there's a job to be done for a thousand years. And we shall live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And then because of the rebellion amongst the nations, that between the sheep and the goat nations, you come to the rebellion after a thousand years, when the devil is released from hell and leads the nations in the final attack. And then God destroys the devil and destroys the world and makes a new heaven and a new earth. But look, we're, we're part of a kingdom. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Sometimes the way we act in churches, we're, 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 we're like kingdoms. The, the Anglican church, I don't know if you know, Katie's father was an Anglican priest, only died at, what, 96, I think. 97. (laughs) He was an Anglican priest. And you know the teaching of the Anglican church is that they will convert the world, not the return of Christ. The church takes over. The church becomes the kingdom. God help us when you look at the Church of England today with its scandals. until Archbishop Welby says he's ashamed of the church. No, Christ comes back. Do you know what I discovered from a BBC documentary? Which day day do I finish? (laughs) Because if I get into a bit of prophecy, I discovered from a BBC commentary, uh, a film, uh, about two years ago. It's up there somewhere. It's... it's, uh, You you can find it, and this is what they were saying. It was a secular historian talking about the expansion of the British Empire. And he said something that absolutely shocked me. He said the driving motive behind the expansion of the British Empire was a belief, a false belief, that Britain is Israel, replacement theology and that if Britain is Israel, we must rule the world. Now it's wrong, we are not Israel. Romans says God has not cast away his people. We're grafted in. We're not the Jew, we're not Israel. But if you can understand that for a secular historian to attribute the expansion of the empire to be a Christian motive. That's why, don't apologize for the British Empire and colonialism, I'm sorry, I'm proud of Britain, because under the empire we took the gospel to every single corner of the empire, every single nation, whether it's America, which is just a British colony, Or Australia or India or Africa. You I talk to these pastors that are here from Africa, from India, and so on, and they all say the same. Thank God you in Britain brought the gospel to us. And it's true. Where are we today? We have to evangelize the whole world. And I hear sometimes, I was in a leaders' meeting once and they were talking about, oh, because the Muslims are here. Somebody even brought it up on Friday. Because the Muslims are here, then what an opportunity to evangelize the Muslims. Has God sent them here so that we can evangelize them? And I'll tell you what my answer is, yes. But if you can't evangelize your own people, how do you think you're going to evangelize Muslims? Come on! If you can't evangelize your own people, God help us. We've got to win the world for Christ. We've got to begin preaching that gospel. We've got to be filling our churches, filling our buildings. If you see the way in the former communist countries, how the churches are expanding and how fast they're growing. The largest church in Europe was in Ukraine. And the pastor came to the Lord under my ministry. The biggest biggest messianic congregation in Europe is in Kiev. And he was one of my boys up in Siberia 24 years ago. And when we were together last weekend, boy, oh boy, what a wonderful time we had. He didn't have a congregation. He didn't have a group. He was just with me for three months in Siberia. And I'll tell you this, I took 200 Westerners and 200 um, Ukrainians to Siberia for three months. I never heard much about the Westerners who came back. But when those Ukrainians came back, do you know what the the pastors in Ukraine said to me? They said, David, what did you do with our young people who went to Siberia with you? We sent you up boys and you brought me back men and they became the pastors of the churches, like Boris in Kiev. And we sat together last weekend. Oh, what wonderful days those were. Do you understand? The kingdom of God is not in word, but it's indeed. Let me tell you a funny story. I said, I promised last night I'd tell you this story. I was called about I don't know is it five years ago or something like that I was called to go to Georgia not America I'm talking about the Georgia that was in the battle with Russia and the Russians invaded you know and uh, next to Armenia it's, uh, Georgia is in that circle with Armenia and, Nick, and the borders Russia and so the, the, there's only a handful of Christians in the country and they called me to go there and to evangelize and they said come on David um, there's only a few hundred of us Christians here, so let's take a hall seating, say, 500 or maybe 1,000, and um, we'll evangelize. I looked at them, I said, don't be crazy. I said, I'm not coming here to Armenia to evangelize, in a hall seating 1,000. I said, you take the biggest football stadium seating 15,000. They said, we, we don't have... That number of Christians, I think there were I think in the whole country there was only four, thousand Christians scattered over the whole country. They said, what do you I said, we take the biggest stadium and God will fill it. So we began the preparation. well, they did the preparation, and in Georgia, there was a businessman he wasn 't a Christian, this businessman had heard about my Bible smuggling always said um, We only got Bibles by smuggling, is there no other way. Uh, And he decided he'd make a film about me. And that they would show it in the cinemas. And the first showing was to be the day before we began the crusade. So they had me on breakfast television and talking to talk about the film. But I've learned from the politicians, uh, if they ask you a question, never answer the question, just tell them what you think. You know, all politicians are the same, aren't they? They don't answer your, answer your questions. Any politicians here? <laughs> so I didn't answer their questions. I wasn't talking about the film. I was talking about the stadium. And look, we've got this stadium, and we're going to see miracles there, on the power of God, and I'm urging you all to come. Boy, oh boy, the Orthodox Archbishop, prelate, whatever they call him, the head of the Orthodox Church, was blazing mad. About this stadium. I demand time to stop him. So the Archbishop, on the morning, the Friday morning, the crusade was to start, is on television saying, We believe that God is only in the church, God will not be in this stadium, and nobody can be blessed and find God and find hope outside of the church. And he was saying, this David Hathaway, he's a liar, he's a thief, he's this, he's that. In the end, he got so eloquent, he said, this David Hathaway is the devil himself. He's got horns and a fiery tail. (laughs) Boy, oh boy, that's the opening day. Well, when it came to the evening, the car taking me to the meeting had to fight its way through the crowds and we got there the place was packed out and all television stations were there and i said why are not they here somebody said because they would never seen the devil before <laughs> <laughs> but you see how powerful god is so the whole thing went live on television we preached And, I don't know, probably 10,000 repented on the opening night. There were such outstanding miracles of healing. And you know what secular television is? The secular television was interviewing the people who were healed to prove that miracles didn't happen. And everyone was saying, Oh yes, when I prayed, David told me to pray to Jesus. And look, my legs are healed, my eyes are open. Everyone, there's only one person who did not live on television confess it was a miracle. It was some poor wretch who said, I was there too late and I missed the miracles. <laughs> but you see, God is not defeated. What kind of a God do you have? Oh, come on. I, I couldn't, I'm sorry, I couldn't sit down there in those seats. <laughs> No, because God is a God of action. God is a God of power. God's a God of glory. I can carry in another five minutes, can I? Oh, thank you. (laughs) Well, uh, uh, (laughs) one day, two days, three days? (laughs) No, I won't keep you because it'll be lunchtime soon. (laughs) You're English. You want your Sunday lunch. No, the thing is this, that I had an experience with God. A couple of years ago, I'd gone to the mountains. I actually go to the mountains in Austria because I used to go skiing. And if you want to learn how to pray, if you don't learn to ski till you're 50 years old, that's when everybody stops. And you go on the dangerous slopes, you know, you stood up there on somebody is nodding you know what i mean you stand up the top your knees are shaking because you're not an experienced skier you don't learn when you're 50 you learn when you're five months old or something and uh and i'm just praying to god and you know and i'd launch myself up from the top and say oh god you know keep me alive you know get me to the bottom I learned how to pray. (laughs) If you're going down those mountains and you're not a good skier, believe me, you pray all the way down. (laughs) Uh, But one day, I I wasn't on the mountain. It was in the summer. I wasn't on the mountain. There's a lake. And I went for a walk around the lake. And I was having experience with God and I was talking and I determined that all the way around the lake take me an hour or so that I would get into a conversation with the Lord, and this is what I was saying. I was saying, Holy Spirit, you are the power behind the throne. You know that, don't you? You know the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. My father always described the Holy Spirit as the executive agent. (laughs) It's a good description. He's the one that does the work. It was the Holy Spirit in the birth of Jesus, the Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead, it's the Holy Spirit in us. And I was saying, Jesus said, when he went to heaven, that, and after we received the Holy Spirit, we would do the miracles that Jesus did, and greater. And I was saying, oh Lord, you know, why am I not seeing bigger miracles? You know, calming storms. Oh yes, we've calmed storms so many times. and it, It's not just miracles of healing. If you read the book, Why Siberia? If you want to read about miracles, Why Siberia is the story of the thousand miracles that occurred in three months in Siberia. It's, everybody should read it. But we probably haven't got it here. Oh, we have, right. Anyway, I was in this argument with the Holy Spirit saying, Holy Spirit, tell me how Jesus could do all those things. Because, you see, my Bible suggests, now I'm I'm, I'm, I'm in difficult theological ground here. All right, I'm a doctor of divinity, but it doesn't mean I know everything. (laughs) Degrees don't mean much, do they? (laughs) But the fact is this. I'm saying, look, when Jesus was born, he was born of a woman through the power of the Holy Spirit. But you notice that he didn't work any miracles for 30 years. Oh, I know the Catholics say he healed little birds, and it's a load of rubbish. That's not in the Bible. He didn't do any miracles because my Bible says the first miracle was turning water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana. I don't read a Catholic Bible. I read the real Bible. (laughs) So I'm saying, well, how is it that Jesus did that? Because my Bible actually says that when he came, he divested himself of his heavenly authority. Your Bible says the same. So then, how did he do it? And then the Holy Spirit was really showing me that it was only when Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, the change took place. So, in actual fact, although Jesus was the Son of God, it was the Holy Spirit in him that was doing the miracles. It's obvious, isn't it? That's why Jesus said, Wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes, and when the Holy Spirit comes, you will do the same miracle. Do you understand? So it's not me, it's not you, it's the Holy Spirit that was in Jesus, in us, that will do the miracles. And so there is no limit. Jesus, if he'd, he only ministered for three and a half years, if he'd stayed for 35 years in ministry, there would have been a lot more miracles. So we can expect bigger miracles. Now, you know that I had 4,000 unbelieving Jews. Well, it was more than 4,000. It was closer to 5,000 unbelieving Jews in Caesarea just over a year ago. We had to fight because the Orthodox Jews did everything to stop us. And the first thing they did was they waited until about three days before the event, knowing that there was a Sabbath coming between, and they then took out an injunction to stop the the the, uh, the, 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 the Caesarea in renting the stadium to us. And they took that, and my lawyer, i I got a good lawyer out there, he went straight into the parliament said, they're trying to stop David Hathaway renting this stadium. And they went to the foreign minister, who's a friend of mine, who uh, befriended me in in the parliament, and he said, no, don't stop David. I know David. He's a good man. He loves Israel. There's nothing wrong. Don't stop him. So the next thing they did, they went to the bus company and we got, I don't know, was it 100 or 400 uh, buses? 100 buses to bring 4,000 people. We don't wait until they turn up, we organise. And we organise the buses and we knew we had 100 buses with 4,000 people who would come. We turned away 2,000, we didn't have enough buses. And there wasn't enough room in the stadium. So what they did was the Orthodox went to the bus company and said, if you rent these buses to David Hathaway, we will cancel every contract and we'll make you bankrupt. So 24 hours before the Sabbath, we'd lost every bus. What was I doing? I didn't know the full extent of the battle, but with my intercessors, and there were 30 of us, we were praying, and i tell you what I was praying. Oh God, I said, you've never been defeated in battle. I said, from the beginning of time until now, you've always been victorious. Give us the victory in Jesus' name. We defeat the enemy in Jesus' name. They will not win. Oh God, you have never, ever, ever been defeated, and you're not going to be defeated now. Wow. What happened? With 24 hours left, all the Holocaust survivor groups were told they chartered the buses. (laughs) And so all the buses turned up. And so there I was. I'd arrived at the stadium early and the people were waiting to come in. And when we got there, we found out there was a storm blowing. A storm so violent, never been seen, on the, at the Caesarea, the stadium, is right on, on the shore. And two things that happened. One was these orthodox bully boys said, because it's the Sabbath, we're going to go in one day before, we'll be lying and waiting, we'll be hiding there, we're coming from the beach, we'll come in, nobody will stop us, and we'll be there, we'll shout, we'll blow horns, we'll cut the lines on the, on, on the power system, it will not go ahead. And then the storm had come. Well, the first thing that had happened was I had prayed a very unusual prayer. I had said, Oh God, I want you to that, surround that stadium with a wall of fire and stop these boys getting in. Well, that's what they used to pray in the Bible, isn't it? And I said, I want you to send angels with flaming swords. Do you know what happened? The police said, we'll protect the stadium and use your 100 buses as a barricade round the stadium. Wall of fire. The police, armed with Kalashnikovs, said, we know who these bully boys are. They rounded every one of them up, photographed them, took all their details of their name and their address, and then said, if there's any disturbance in the stadium, whether you're there or not, we've got your details, you go to prison. So the boys fled. Angels with flaming sword, Israeli police with Kalashnikovs. <laughs> God's modern and up to date. <laughs> but now the storm was so strong, the whole of our massive strike... You can see it on television, by the way. It's on our website, the pictures of Caesar here. And the massive structure, with the big screens and the the loudspeakers, was swaying in the wind. The wind was so strong, it was moving three feet either way. And the police said, nobody can go in, because the whole structure is going to collapse. And we cannot, it's too dangerous, nobody goes in. And there's me. We fought every battle till now. Oh God, what do we do? Are we going to be defeated by the devil at the last minute? I grabbed my intercessor, jumped up on the platform, and I began to pray, Oh God, in Jesus' name, 2,000 years ago, you calmed the storm on Galilee. Stop the storm on the Mediterranean now. And instantly... In Jesus' name, the storm stopped in front of a total of almost 5,000 people. The police opened the gates and we came and they started exactly on time because we were broadcasting live to the whole nation. You see, I mean, I'm looking at you lot. What kind of a God do you have? Why aren't you doing this? Exactly, why? Is your God any different to mine? Come on, let's rise up like an army, come on. Do you know, you together with God, we could take the whole nation? Because what we're doing, can you imagine what we've done in the Ukraine by rallying the churches and the leaders together and having these national days of prayer and the next one's on the 2nd of June this year, you should be out there, come and get a ticket to Kiev because we'll have nine, uh, 10,000 people there. And it, last year, it so touched the president of the Ukraine that he announced live on television when he was making presenting me with the gold watch, he said live on television, the people have chosen the church and chosen God, and we in the government must make the same choice. And then, within days, he declared 2018, this year, the year of the Bible in the whole of the Ukraine. Now, can you imagine 25 years ago, that was a nation where they were killing every Christian, imprisoning millions, millions of Christians. Now, it's doing something not seen in any other nation in Europe. Oh, come on. I'm going to leave you to take this nation by storm. (sighs) Come on. And what are we doing? We're we're starting with prayer. We're praying you should be in these big prayer meetings. Oh boy. We're going to take the O2 or the Royal Albert Hall for the next one. You get there and get fired up. Because where do I get my fire? It's in the throne room. What changed Moses? I will shut up in a few minutes. Give me five minutes. (laughs) Four (laughs) o'clock. What happened to Moses? Look, I said I'd tell you how to get a bit like me. No, no, don't be like me. We need people a lot stronger than me. I'm not strong enough. I'm not the one. Don't look at me. You look at the Holy Spirit and look what Jesus did. Anyway, let me just tell you. What happened to Moses? Now Moses, like me, lived for 120 years. And if you look at his life, it was divided into three periods of 40. He was brought up in the king's palace, adopted son of the king's daughter. You know the story. For 40 years he lived in the king's palace. And then in anger he killed a man and ran for his life and spent the next 40 years keeping sheep out in the back of the desert. Right? And when he was 80 years old, God met him. He was out there in the desert and he saw this bush on fire. But the thing was, the amazing thing was, the bush was on fire, but the bush was not destroyed. And he came and stopped and stood. And God spoke to him out of the fire. There's a time in your life where you've got to stand still and let God talk to you straight red hot out of the fire. Too often when God's speaking, it's in the cold, freezing. No, when God speaks, you want the voice of God from the fire. When I meet with God, I want a God of fire talking to me, a God of power talking to me. What kind of a God are you talking to? And then I'll tell you if you really want the fire, and I will shut up with this in a moment. Moses spent the remaining 40 years leading Israel out of Egypt. That's about that bit I read you at the beginning about the true fast is releasing the bondage. You spent the next 40 years with the rebellious people leading them out of Egypt into the kingdom. We've got to lead the people of God out of Egypt. The church is in Egypt, inundated with the world. Why do you think they vote for same-sex marriage? They don't oppose abortion. How many million have we killed? Did somebody say five million? Or is it nine million? It's either five or nine million babies that we've killed. Murdered! And we complain about murder in Syria. And we're more guilty. But let me tell you this. Our God is a a consuming fire. That's what the Bible says. Our God is a consuming fire. Don't stand and look at that fire. Too many people, too many Christians are just standing looking at the fire. You've got to do what Moses did not do and you've got to do what I'm going to do. And what I'm going to do when I leave you here, I'll tell you where I'm going. I'm going to walk straight into the fire itself. Did you hear me? Until the fire will consume me. And you'll no longer see me. You'll only see God's fire. Ooh, What God could do with you if you would step aside. Come aside from where you are and what you're doing. And when you see where that fire is, get on your feet. And it's going to burn you. The fire will consume you. Our God is a consuming fire. Walk into that fire until it burns up all the dross. All the works of man. And I will not succeed in my life. I haven't begun my life yet. You don't know what I'm talking about. I haven't begun my life. I'm only five years into my next and my last 40 years, because it's very significant. How old was I when they threw me into communist prison? Exactly 40 years old. Five years ago, what happened? I met the man who's now my intercessor. And my life changed. And I'm in the process now of walking into the fire. Because whatever God has done in the past, he has to do a thousand times more to change this nation and to bring this nation back to God. The nation is corrupt. Why is it corrupt? Because we grew up on Judeo-Christian morality. We went to church and we turned our back on God and a morality and they say the children are being corrupted from the age of five in the schools when they're told they're not to announce they're a boy or a girl God made us men and women thank God he did and being a married man with three daughters and How many grandchildren, five grandchildren and four great-grandchildren? I say, thank God for the difference between men and women. (laughs) Amen? Amen. I wouldn't have children and grandchildren and great-children if it wasn't for the difference between men and women. Thank God for the difference. But I challenge you. You can listen to me preaching and many of you go away and say, oh, it was all right, only it went on a bit too long. If only two will hear what I've said and walk into the fire. Look what God can do. God can use you more than he's used me. For years, you won't understand this, I was totally rejected in Britain. When I wanted to be an evangelist, we don't pay evangelists. When I came out of the prison and they said, what are you going to do? I'd lost everything. Lost everything. Because I had to pay. You have to pay to be in one of their communist prisons. And I'll tell you what happened. They said, what are you going to do? They said, become a pastor. Go back. I said, I cannot. I have to go back to the people. In that prison, I learned to love them with a passion. And I will not turn my back on them. They excommunicated me from the church. They took away my license to preach when I came out of prison. You don't understand. And for 40 years I've been saying, God sent me out of Britain. I believe God is bringing me back for a purpose. And it is to raise you up and to challenge you because every man, woman here can do more than I do because what I do is not me. It's only the Holy Spirit. And if you can receive more of the Holy Spirit than I do, you can do more. You can do more than Jesus did. It's not you in the flesh. It's God in you. Let's pray. Father. I could pray so many things, but the one thing I pray this morning is that you will not let any of us leave this building unchanged. Oh God, if they go out this morning, the same as they came in, God help me, I failed you. Holy Spirit, you revealed the true God to me. Reveal that God to these people. Baptize them with fire, with power, and raise up the Reinhard Bonkies and the Billy Grahams and the Wesleys here in this place. Oh God, let them do what I cannot do. In Jesus' name. Father, oh, Father, just begin to speak to them. Lord, in the stillness and the quietness right now, God is calling to you. No, I'm not making the call for repentance, or if there is anybody here who doesn't know the God I'm talking about, then all you have to do is raise your hand, and I'll pray that that God would enter into your soul. But Christian, are you prepared to put your life on the altar for God? We used to sing that song. I don't hear it these days. Lay your life on the altar for God. He's calling you today. And he's calling you. You say, no, I can't because I'm bound by so many things. You can become that prayer warrior. Why am I doing what I do today? Because there's a man, one man and many thousands of others who are standing behind me in prayer. I often say, who am I? I'm the product of my father's praying. When I was a teenager, my bedroom was over the kitchen. I woke every morning to the sound of my father praying for me in the room below me. And I today am the product of my father's praying. If you cannot go yourself, pray for someone else. In Jesus' name, Father. Oh, Father, in Jesus' name. Let change come over all of us. Lord, I want to step out of here and I don't want to be the man I was when I came in. I want to be a new man. I want an encounter with you, O God. Father, I pray this over people in this room, that they would meet with you today. And if there is one of you who will commit your life and say, I'm going to lay my life on the altar, and I'll do whatever God calls me to do. Just slip your hand up for a moment. Yes, put them down. I've seen those hands. Father, I pray that you would recognize every hand that was raised. And Lord, I pray the Holy Spirit to touch those hands and flow down the arm and reach the heart and put the heart of a lion in men and women who've raised their hands. Because the scripture says our God is lion and lamb. Oh God, there's times when we need the lamb. But right now we need the lion. Oh God, let your spirit fall and not leave us. Oh God, let your spirit fall upon me afresh today. And don't leave me until Jesus comes. I used to sing, I don't know if you know this song, Spirit of the Living God, Fall Fresh on Me. You know it? Could we sing it? Spirit of every morning as I'm walking on the road to go to the person who's taking me in the car to the office I sing I say those words they become so precious to me in these last years I need you more I need him more than yesterday I need God more than Friday In that great meeting in the Emmanuel Center I need God more than today, more than yesterday. Let's sing that again. I need you more. I need you more, more than yesterday. Next up. I don't think I've ever spoken quite as passionately as I've spoken today. Thank you. God bless you.